Hello and welcome to another episode of the Dialogic Disciple Podcast. My name is James Johnson and I'm here as always with my co-host, Nick Houston. Nick, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. It's you, a beautiful day. It is a beautiful day outside. We have a special guest with us, biblical scholar Sarah Porterfield. Sarah, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, thank you. <laughs> she is joining us for our conversation today. Uh, people have already met you, right? They know who you are. They know, they know what you do. We don't need to do an introduction. Yeah, She's done it before. Right. She's been here before. Yep. So cool. Welcome, Sarah. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Uh, so today we're going to jump right into our conversation. I think uh, we've we've uh, you've been teaching a class, Nick, on uh, Sunday school at during Sunday school. Nick, you've been teaching a class during Sunday school called WWJD. That's right. What does that stand for? What would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? Yes, and uh, you've been covering um, uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. Yeah, uh, which also uh, you know our pastor, Doctor Bill, has been preaching right. on Ezra and Nehemiah as well. So we're going to have a conversation about Ezra Nehemiah today. Uh, and I'm gonna let you lead off, Nick. What do you? Uh, how do you want to? How do you want to jump into this conversation? Well, I guess we're gonna jump in hard. <laughs> Let's um, jump into the deep end of the pool. You know, it's been neat talking talking about it in Sunday school, and then also Bill talking about it with his yeah talk sermons. About, talk about that experience a little bit. How, um, how's that? How does that enriched your experience? Uh, well, I have the opportunity. You know, I'm preparing my lesson beforehand, and then I also did read Bill's sermons beforehand. I don't know if y'all realize it or not, but there's always a manuscript from Bill. So yeah. if ever you go, that was a great sermon, I'd love to remember what he said. It's written down, and, and you can get a manuscript. Um, word for word. So <laughs> it is neat to have a little bit of research put in ahead of time before you get into the sermon it is neat isn't it um and <laughs> it's it, good to be prepared before you show up to teach fills out well right you know <laughs> and and so i think for the class too it's kind of filling out some information some historical like context um before they get into the sermon and hear it or maybe after they've heard the sermon it helps kind of associate stuff all right um depending on whether you're doing early church or right how what has your class response been to ezra nehemiah I think it's been pretty well. Yeah. Pretty good. I'm I think it's gone well. Okay. The day um, I was there it was great. Yeah, it's conversational and it yeah. is an opportunity to kinda you know, there's a little bit of history in there and what is God calling his people to do and yeah. how does that affect how we do life? Like what can we take out of this that that um influences our understanding of God now and how we respond to him. Yeah. Excellent. And sir, you've been to the class. I did. I went once. What what did you think of Nick's uh, WWJD class? I was impressed. I was impressed with how he how he formatted the class, how he laid it all out. He went through this big introduction, and then we and then we just discussed it. And I don't know, he seemed to know what you were talking about. If I have time to read beforehand, <laughs> it's amazing, you know what what the difference in reading something and having four or five days to think about it and then come teach it oh, versus absolutely. trying to read something the night before. Uh huh. Um, I do way or better, even though I'm not spending any more time reading there is something about that um subconsciously your, your brain's working on it it is it is yeah it's kind of amazing we the have brain a, is we, amazing the brain is an amazing beast um okay well uh sarah tell me uh what's your experience with ezra nehemiah <laughs> What do you know about this book? Well, because I, I, I asked a question because well, let me just say this real quick. Because I asked a question because this is not uh, this is not a, a section of scripture that we typically cover a lot. In you know, it's not even it's like kind of a 
Uh, it's even kind of a boring part of the, it's not boring, but this is how people think of it as, as a boring part of even the Old Testament. Um, so I'm, I'm curious as to what your initial thoughts are on the two books. Well, I have decided that it is about the human condition. Oh, wow. That's deep. <laughs> you think Ezra and Nehemiah is about the human condition? Cast how so? a, I do. Cast a wide net to yeah. catch something. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's right. right. <laughs> I believe that it's about people. That is exactly and correct. God. Yes. I'm feeling a real strong Jesus vibe from this Ezra character. <laughs> I'm getting a big hit of Jesus. <laughs> no, he's like us. He fails. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's, and um, it's just sort of how we live day to day and and the mundane and then how things just sometimes don't work out. Yeah, yeah, that's good. That's sometimes really good. what I really like about the podcast is that I take the opportunity just to be real honest. Yeah. And I don't I worry about people thinking I'm dumb because I know I'm not. There you go. That's I, a preface for something. What are you about to drop? I kept thinking of Jeremiah when we were talking about Nehemiah. <laughs> like in like the you thought leading were... up to stuff. Okay. Um, really getting it square in my head that this is two different guys doing two <laughs> different things in two different time periods. Yeah. Well, associated, but different time right. periods. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 That's, well, you know, they do rhyme. Jeremiah, Nehemiah. I mean, Nehemiah was a bullfrog. No, no wait, that's, that's, not right. that's not right. <laughs> that's not right. <laughs> uh, Nehemiah is actually one of my favorite characters in all of scripture. Uh, and I say that about a lot of them, but that's true about Nehemiah. I'm usually making it up when I say that. But he has, uh, uh, the Nehemiah story in itself is, is a story that I've gone back to many, many, many times. Ezra, not so much. But uh, Nehemiah, I love, I love the fact that this is just like a regular dude. Like he is not a prophet. He's not a priest. priest. He's not being called to be either one of those things. He's just a regular guy. He's just a guy who uh, is passionate about Jerusalem and about serving God and is open to whatever God has for him to do. And that's something that I think speaks volumes to, you know, lay involvement in the church, right? Mm -hmm. The fact that we've all been given something to do. We all have a role and a place and a part uh, of the body to fulfill. And uh, and Nehemiah is, is the poster child of... Somebody who's not, you know, you, someone you wouldn't expect to be so important, and yet here he is, uh, fulfilling a pretty big role. I mean, we could run down a rabbit trail here for a second. Yeah, let's do it. Because what's interesting here is we talk about, you know, God using a lay person, regular people, but this was not a regular person. You don't think Nehemiah was a regular person? I mean, he was kind of a muckety-muck, right? Well, I don't know what you mean by that. What does muckety-muck mean? Is that I a mean, southern thing? Well, Maybe. Do you know what I mean I by that? Know. Yeah. What does that mean? I guess so. It's like high fluting. Aristocratic. Okay. You know, well, sort of like if he's, he's hanging out in the palace, cupbearer for the king. Yeah. Like, did they use, would the cupbearer for the king be like a prestigious position or would that be like. I mean, he's the guy that tests the stuff for poison, right? So. Yeah, but also he's closest to the king to poison it. <laughs> right. I mean, he's that's trusted. True. He's trusted. That's true. So um, he was in a in a particular position to be able to petition the king yeah. for such an event as, hey, can I go back and rebuild the walls and the gates of the city of Jerusalem? Whereas, you know, if you'd have been real regular, you wouldn't have been that close to the king. So if you're, real if, regular. That's true. That's true. Real, real, reg- regular. real regular. Uh, that might be true. Although, to be fair, to be honest, and this is a misconception a lot of people have about the... Um, the exile in general is that the only people that were really exiled from Jerusalem in the first place and from Judah in the first place were people of high, high flute and value. Right. They right? Were so it's all the scholars people. and yeah, it took them people who could read and write and the people who were rich and wealthy. 
uh, and anybody who had any skill, really at all, marketable skill, uh, to back mm-hmm. to Babylon. So it was, you know, Nehemiah is coming from, you know, he's not, he's not somebody who ever has even seen Jerusalem or seen mm-hmm. the Holy Land or seen, you know, the Promised Land, I should say. Uh, and uh, he, you know, he, he's a child of somebody who had some kind of skill and had some kind of influence and power in Judea. Um, so. I mean, everybody, all the Jews in in exile are highfalutin or whatever the word it was, muckety muck. I used muckety muck. Muckety muck. But highfalutin is another good one. Highfalutin. Highfalutin. Also, a southern word, I think. Yes, indeed. That's correct. That's not word language I typically (laughs) use, but you know, (laughs) who knows? Um, Just for when you're hanging out with me, James. Yep. So I mean I have a lot to, I would like to say about Nehemiah, but um, let's let's start with uh, Ezra. And as Bill has pointed out in his sermons, Ezra and Nehemiah used to be one book. Uh, it got split up by you know the Christian Bible makers. Uh, but uh, you guys talk about Ezra, like you've been teaching on Ezra, Nick. What do you mm-hmm. what have you pulled away from the Ezra story that that's really interested you? I mean, has there been something that's really punched you, or really like really grabbed your attention? His willingness to to and desire to call the people back to God, mm-hmm. to have lived in captivity. I mean, he also petitions the king and gets permission to return to Jerusalem, takes the group, and his willingness to take that on, his recognition, even in exile, that he's still um, a priest. Right. Um, and this is the king before Yep. The king before Nehemiah's king, right? So right. this is the original guy who lets the, the guys go, Cyrus. Yeah, this king would be Cyrus. 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 Yeah. Um, who, by the way, was known as the King of Kings. This is where that terminology comes from. He was the first one to be called that, the King of Kings, the great King of Persia. As he kept uh, taking over smaller kingdoms yeah, or weaker right. kingdoms. That's exactly right. And in fact, Isaiah, he, he is really um, that king, King Cyrus or Cyrus, however you want to pronounce it. Uh, he is considered by most scholars to be the, the, the messianic figure that Isaiah is talking about in, in uh, the end of Isaiah, who's not mm-hmm. actually written by prophet Isaiah, but by, uh, exilic and post-exilic, uh, uh, community of prophets, but under the name or pseudonym of, of Isaiah. Mm-hmm. And they're talking about the guy who releases the captives and lets everyone go back to, to the promised land and reestablish the kingdom of, of, you know, Israel. That's him. That's King Cyrus that does that. Cyrus, Cyrus, whatever. And that's who Ezra petitions to get permission yep. to go back to Jerusalem. And so, yeah, so, so say, yeah. say more about that. So, so your, your, de- his dedication, his dedication to living out the kind of the, for me, the, um, the culture, the history of his ancestors, like they're still attached to the promised land, still attached to Jerusalem, even though he's not lived there. Yeah. Um, and wants to go back and rebuild the temple. Yeah. And, and that kind of dedication recognizing that you've got a place and, and still holding on to that place and your the calling that God has on you, even though I, I think part of the conversation I had with my classes, how much of the law are the Jews in exile still living? Obviously they're missing a chunk of it. They don't have the temple to do sacrifices in anymore. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are pieces of the law that they're still trying to fulfill. And he's wanting to, Hey, let's, we, we've got these scrolls. We've got the law. Let's get back and open them up and, start reading and start living the way God called us to live. Um, that takes some, some strength, some faith, yeah, some perseverance. You're talking um, about trying to rebuild the entire 
Mm-hmm. When you're trying to rebuild the whole, the not whole just religious nation, structure, the whole religious structure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's that's quite a that's quite a revival, so to speak. I guess you might say revival is a good. That uh, is a good word. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Now, is he the guy who uh, does he rebuild the temple, or is that the guy before him? Zerubbabel rebuilds the temple. Is that right? That's right. <laughs> Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel rebuilds Zerubbabel. the temple, and Ezra is the kind of preacher. Okay. So tell me, does he succeed? in rebuilding this faith structure. What do you think? At least as much as God did with the Israelites. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I mean... That sounds heretical. I don't mean it that way. Yeah, right, right. (laughs) No, I I think uh, Dr. Bill did a great job of kind of of showing the, the ebb and flow of what happens here in the return because they're coming back you know, and, and the rebuilding the temple and the rebuilding the structure and rebuilding Jerusalem. But it, it's like every time they reach that peak, they eventually hit that decline mm-hmm. again, right? Uh, and so it, it's, it fits the structure of a lot of different uh, pieces of history within Israel. Um, the, the period of the judges and, and just really, mm-hmm. really just the entire history of maybe just humankind. So maybe you're right, uh, Sarah. It does go back to <laughs> human nature, uh, you know, the human condition, so to speak. Everything does. So Ezra goes back, Zerubbabel goes back and rebuilds the temple. Yep. Ezra goes back and starts to try to rebuild the religious structure, the religious uh, practices and whatnot. Uh, and then Nehemiah is a guy who uh, has no true religious affiliation, right? Yeah, he doesn't and, hold an office. He doesn't hold a... an office, right? And in fact, he works for uh, the Persian king as the, as the cupbearer. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I've always imagined Nehemiah as being a, a younger man. Um, I don't know how old he is. It may even tell us in the scriptures, but I don't remember. But I always imagine him being a guy who he he has grown his entire life. He's been in under either under a Babylonian rule or Persian rule, right? Right. He has never been to Jerusalem. He's never re, he's never been to this place that you know that they still have songs about. You know, he's heard all the songs. He's heard all the all of the. Uh, the, the psalms and the songs that have have been sung and and so he's probably got this big idealized you know version of Jerusalem in his head right this is God's city you know where the yeah. temple of God is and uh, the the story of Nehemiah opens up with um, some of his friends coming back from like spring mm-hmm. break trip to Jerusalem or something <laughs> right and they they tell him about the situation right they say you know Jerusalem's still in ruins like it's still it's still burned down. From when, uh, you know, from the exile that ha- had happened, you know, what is it, like 130 years before, something like that? Yep. Um, and so Nehemiah's heart is broken by this. Like this city that he has like idolized and, and, not, and not idolized, but the city that he has held in such high esteem, the city of God, Jerusalem, is still, still, after 130 years, still, uh, still in ruins. What do you guys like? How do we... <laughs> Have you ever felt that before? I mean, like, what would you, like, how would you feel if you were Nehemiah in that situation? I feel like I'm teaching a class rather than being part of a podcast, but I'm in a teacher mode there for a second. But seriously, though, like, it may, I'm, I wonder why it is still so closely held for him. Because I think that if we were talking about the place that my great-grandparents came from. Yeah. And there was this, you know really awesome church there but i had never been to it yeah 
You wouldn't have the same feeling? I don't know that I would have the same. I don't think I would have the same feeling. Yeah. And I, I, I mean, maybe we're talking a little different scale here with Jerusalem sure. and the temple. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm interested in where this like really strong sense of, I don't know if it's religious pride or, or I, dare I use the word nationalist pride. Yeah, no, it might be um, definitely. But I guess being being under this rule of Babylon, rule of Persia, you just that that maybe is the beacon of Jerusalem. I mean, is the beacon of that's where my people are. That's yeah. where I'm from. That's a part of me. Yeah, I think there's a lot of Christians today who feel the same way, who feel the same way about Jerusalem. I mean, there's a lot of Jerusalem love and Israel love amongst the Christians, Protestant Christians anyway, uh, in in the United States of America. And I think a lot of it is is fueled by that same sense of like that's the holy city, that's the city of God, uh, and that we should have care and compassion for it. You know, even if we've never been there before. Um, I don't know if that's the same thing or not, but I, I, you definitely can see that uh, in some of the ways that people talk about the city of Jerusalem. Sarah, have you ever, like, if you, you know, if you found out that your great-grandfather's church burned down and hadn't been rebuilt, would you care? I, I may, Maybe. I, um, I feel, I definitely feel an attachment to places like that that I've never been. Um, just because I don't, but that might just be more because of the stories that have been passed down. Right. But I think, know, yeah, oh, but there, I think there's a lot to that. But yeah. I think that's exactly why Nehemiah feels the way he does. Right. So, yeah. So it feels more personal because it's just, you know, this tradition of learning about this place that was so special to these people. And, and yeah. So like I have this, uh, I have this desire to go to Paris someday. Right. And I, I know for no other reason than, uh, you know, it's been, it's kind of been, uh, in my head, you know, growing up. And so I, I you know, I, I was a big Ernest Hemingway fan and F. Scott Fitzgerald and they were there as expatriates. And like, so I have this idealized version of Paris in my head. And if I discovered that Paris was burned down and I couldn't go there, the Eiffel Tower had been destroyed and all this other stuff, I think I would be brokenhearted too. Speaking of burned down churches. <laughs> right. So Notre Dame, I mean, that's a, that's a, no, but that's a great example though, because that's a church. That's a church. That's a place yeah. a for a lot of, of people. I mean, yeah, that's you're a talking about one. a thousand years worth of. Right. And I, I didn't get to see it before it burned down. So there, there was, I remember that day that it, mm-hmm. they had it on TV. It was burning down. And I remember thinking to myself, I should have gone. I should have gone. Right. And I remember being pretty sad about that. Now, don't, nobody offered me like a scholarship to go f- fix it, but you know what I mean? Like, right. like <laughs> but Where's I do the remember ERT that feeling team for that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting, it's an interesting question about how we as human beings get connected to places we've never been or even people we've never seen based on, solely based on the stories and the songs that we tell and sing to each other. So Nehemiah shows up to work one day and he's really sad. And King of Persia uh, basically is like, "Here, take this stuff, take what you need, go, go to your people, fix the city, fix Jerusalem, fix whatever you got to fix, do whatever you're gonna do." And 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 Nehemiah leaves. Uh, he leaves Persia um, with with really no plan of what he's gonna do when he gets there, when he gets to Jerusalem. Um, is there anything like in the character of Nehemiah himself that makes him stand out like why it, it, we were talking about this before i mean is it just a, a thing where he is he's put in a position kind of like esther where he's just in, happens to be in a position where he can help out or is there something special about him as a man or as a human being that makes him i mean it's not 
only about your position. You've got to be willing to use it. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that he's responsive to God's pull or push in his life on him, that, that sense of, I've, I've got to do this. Um, he could have had the position and not stepped out on faith that God was going to, you know, answer the prayer. Yeah. I mean, he could have been killed by the king for showing up sad in his presence. Yeah, that, I mean, there's some truth to that probably, right? So, you know, the fact that it was a big ask and, and that we're talking about a king that is not a an abs, and a king that is an absolute monarch that has the kind of He's absolute power. Yeah. Like there's no, you know, constitutional restrictions <laughs> exactly. on what the king can do. Right, yeah. Um, this guy's like, mm, that's a terrible idea, and I never want to hear it again. Yeah. You die. I mean, yeah, exactly. He's the, he's the king of the biggest empire in the world at this particular time in history. Um, in fact, I think it was a king, Atazerxes, Atazerxes is doing this. This is uh, Xerxes' son, maybe? The guy who beat the yes. Greeks? The, yes. The Greeks at, at uh, the Yeah, because I looked this up. Yeah, yeah, we talked about 300 in Sunday school yeah, for a yeah, second. yeah, yeah. Um, so I get, so he has to be willing to use his position. He's got to be willing to use his position. I got to be faithful. How I mean, do you faithful? How do you know when you have been put in a position to do that? Like Sarah, let me ask you this. Like, how do you know when God has placed you in a position to do something that you wouldn't normally be asked to do? I guess. Cause I don't think Nehemiah, he's not a builder. Right, so he's being he's he's being asked to do something that he's not normally in his uh, wheelhouse, so to speak. Uh, but how does he know that he's in a position to even be used in such a way? I mean, how how do we how do we wrestle with that as Christians? Like, I'm, I'm trying to learn something from Nehemiah here. I don't know that we do recognize it. I think that's part of the, part of our problem. So I don't I don't know. I think the faith part is the bigger. So what do you mean? Like, you think Nehemiah didn't recognize that he was in that position? I don't know Nehemiah. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm going to guess that it was just because he was so faithful that this all came to be. I don't know. It just kind of showed up. Yeah. And that's part of, I mean, that's part of faith, right? Like 90% of it was just showing up. I mean, even if he wasn't in the position, I think he still would have. That's what Bill said in his sermon. Yeah, yeah. There's some th- there's some truth to that. Just gotta show up. Just gotta show up. Um, one of the things that I love about Nehemiah is when he actually does show up and he he sees the city in in the condition that it's in. The city walls are torn down. The gates are still torn down. A, a lot of us don't realize how important city walls were, you know, back in the time and back in this day when it were really it really represented the identity of the city. Like it was the, the part of the it was what demarcated the city like it, it set the city apart from just the countryside right the city walls are important they represent defense and identity and all of these things that are very important um and he he doesn't like i said i don't think he sets out with the idea that he's going to rebuild the walls i think he gets there and then he kind of assesses the situation and decides that this is the thing that he can do like this is something he can do he's not going to become a priest he's not going to become a prophet right but he is going to do this one thing that he can do which is try to rebuild these walls or rebuild these walls um, and yeah. that, it's a passion. It becomes a passion for him. He does it from a political position. Yeah. Say, what do you mean? He, he's appointed the governor. So he's serving as governor in Jerusalem. Sure. Um, although he's got, he's got some people there that, yeah, as I recall, don't, don't appreciate that. 
right? He's got some some. Conflict. Oh yeah, there yeah. are definitely yeah, yeah. there 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 are neighboring little cities that don't want Jerusalem to be refortified, and they're like, hey guy, this is not a good idea. Yeah, because um, they see the conflict that could be presented. Like you say, now you've got a city with rebuilt walls. You've got a city with some ego. You've got some people who you know, now have something to lose and have some dignity. Yeah, um, those people could cause trouble. Yeah. yeah, or could be trouble. They won't just kowtow to whatever you know influence. I want to, you know, the other governors wanted influence over them. Right, right. I wonder if there's not a parallel here in our own world. In both Ezra and Nehemiah, one of the things that got highlighted in my Bible study was um, the Israelites being led down the wrong path by intermarriages with fern yeah. women. Yeah, fern women. <laughs> no dang fern women. <laughs> Tell you what, if they were high fluting fern high women. Fluting. High fluting fern women. <laughs> that's, that's good. That's funny. Yep, caused problems. People lost their identity. And that's, yeah, and that's a big part of trying to return back to what they were before. Identity is a big part of the Old Testament all over. And so that was another, um, how does a people who have been exiled and dominated by another group of people respond and solidify their identity? And so you have hey, we want to follow the law. We're going to be God's people. We're going to focus on these few bits of the law. Yeah. And the big ones we're going to focus on are not intermarrying with the non-Hebrew people who live around us, um, taking care of the temple, doing the sacrifices, supporting the temple, yeah, and the priests and the Levites. Um, and we're not going to do business on Sunday. Not Sunday, the Sabbath. On the Sabbath, yeah. Um, which we're all... So when the first Chick-fil-A was set up. That was a good joke. <laughs> Apparently. I don't know why that got me so good. But I'm like imagining like the, the Disney's Aladdin version of Chick-fil-A, you know, like from the 1991 yeah. cartoon. Like there's a camel that pulls through a drive through window and it's just like they've got fried chicken, but they don't have buns. It's just pita bread. It's just pita bread. Yeah. yeah. So Nehemiah shows up, he assesses the situation, and he realizes that he can do this thing. And it, and it kind of says that God put it in his heart to, to do this thing where he's rebuilding the walls and, and rebuilding the gates. I like this correlation between a passion that we have in our heart and how it relates to what God has called us to do. Um, and I, see, I think we see that in Ezra, and we see that definitely in Nehemiah. But I, so for you guys, like, When's a time in your life, maybe? I, I don't know if you want to tell a personal story or not, but how do we, how do we as, a, as a people, but also as individuals, like how do we recognize our passions and, and, and then recognize when our passions are really call, is really a call from God to do something? Does that make sense? Like, I'm, I'm curious as to how we can bring these two things together. Because I think people are passionate about things in the church, and they don't realize that if you have a passion for something, particularly within the church or within the life of the community of Christ— that that can be also a call from God to do something, right? It's not just a passion. It's not just something that you like. It's something that God has lit in you to do. And it might be, it might be that Nehemiah, for Nehemiah, it's a lot easier because he he's sacrificed his life, uh, you know, his livelihood, I should say, and in in this way of life in, in exile to come back 
to this place where he knows he's going to encounter resistance. He knows. Oh yeah, it's not going to be easy. He knows it's not going to be easy. He doesn't even know what he's going to do until he gets there. Um, but after having after going through that kind of sacrifice, so it's like sacrifice of self. Maybe it's understanding, feeling the passion, and knowing the call of God can can be easier. But again, you know, that's not a common thing in this world. You got to be in touch with that. Yeah. No, and that's right. How do you get in touch with that? That's right. No, I've had I've actually been thinking lately about how I've identified God um sign, you know, messages from God, signs from God. Yeah. Just, just identifying God in my life. And um for the longest time, you know, I thought it was my consciousness. I thought that was yeah. that was God. Like it was just this like mm-hmm. the gut feeling or this idea that like whatever was in my head, that's that's God. And usually it 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 lined up with whatever I was taught about morality. Like this is sure. good, this is bad, and that was God. Sure. But that's not actually who God is. So I um I've actually just been trying to spend time noticing sort of the wonders of God and and picking up on those and and just sort of trying to see God in my everyday life and how and how that can show up and be and be miraculous and be instant and just but that doesn't have anything to do with what we're talking no, about. No, it does. It, it definitely does. How how do you go about doing that? Like how do you go about particip- or uh trying to pay attention to the wonders and, and the things around you? So things that uh bring me joy. Mm-hmm. You know, just like the small things, like when um my, I come home from work and my dog is ecstatic to see me. Like, you know, I'm, she's obsessed with me <laughs> and loves me. And it, and that's just a small joy that I experience. that, um, I don't think comes from anywhere, but God or like, yeah. you know, in like, you know, a kid, like when you look at your kid's eyelashes, you know, or like their hair and smell their head or their hair on a new baby, yeah. you know, yeah, things, yeah. Or even a sunset, you mm-hmm, know, just, mm-hmm. the, just these things that you appreciate about the world um, that came from God, that are God. I, d- I don't think as a culture we are very uh, very good at that, right? Kind of slowing down and taking a moment to, to see those places where even just small moments, like they don't have to be big epic moments, right? Um, but where God is present in those moments. I'm, I'm curious then, like, how do you take that? that feeling that you now have recognized as something that comes from God. How does that translate or does it translate into some kind of call to action? Something that you, that you now feel like you are compelled to do because you have felt this presence of God in the sunset or in the, in, in the dog's, you know, ecstaticness. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, that's a serious question. Like, yeah, no. how do we, how do we translate that? Because I think that's, I think a lot of times we get discouraged when we feel called by God or we feel like we're not going to ever going to be able to achieve the things that God has called us to do because we don't we don't root it in that joy and in that presence of God, right? We we feel like we just got to do it ourselves. I'll take the backpack and go do it myself and we lose that sense of connectedness with who God is and what God has called us to do. So anyway, how do you like did you have any thoughts I, on that? Yeah, I would just my Right now, where I am is I just want other people to experience that, and so I want to create ways and opportunities for people okay. to experience those little moments of God, you know. And I then just 
figuring out ways for people to do that, whether it's like through small group, through discussion and talking Mm -hmm. about it, or Mm -hmm. like maybe coming up with some sort of program that is based around identifying those moments. Yeah. Um, that's, that's where I would take it. What about you, Nick? Do you, uh, do you have, uh, moments of recognizing God and in your life, like little moments? Yeah. I've, I think there's like two directions. There is the looking back on life and seeing the way that things kind of got woven together, the events that fell into place or the, 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 the people that were put in your life that yeah. said the right thing at the right time um, that inspired you to make a move to do something different, to change something to that, or, or even encouraged you in the course you were on, you know? Yeah. And when those, when those people in life, I know that those people were, you know, rooted in Christianity and had a relationship with Jesus and that they were, they, they were speaking the best way they knew how about their experience with God. And um, that, you look back on that and you go that 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 was god working through those people or or those events or that timing you know so there's that and then there is also that same kind of awe that you see in the world around you when you're living life every day um you know for me i've talked about this before um that getting into the duck blind before daylight and you watch the sunrise um, yeah. And if it's particularly a clear morning and you see the sky, you know, first turn pink and orange and then that crystal blue and it really does look like a dome and you just think, how this, there's no way this was an accident. Right. Right. There's just no way. Um, so, but okay. When you experience that, what does that do for I mean, does that ever come with like a call to action though? Is it, does it ever come with like a, okay, now I have a clear understanding of what I, what God has called me to do or, you know, I'm like, does it, does it grow out? Does it grow beyond just being a moment of experiencing God or experiencing joy? Does it become something that you then have to move in a direction? Like you have, you're being pushed or moved in some direction. I mean, that's part of where the call for me comes from to participate in church, yeah. to be present, yeah. to share with other people. Like, I feel like I've got this thing where, you know, if I study my Bible and get my little lesson pulled together, I can do Sunday school. Um, I can come on the podcast. I can tell the neighbor kids, you know, <laughs> hey, come over, have fun, have some chips, whatever. That's cool. We're going to church. Everybody going home or are you coming with me? What do you want to do? <laughs> um because once you have that experience of really understanding, like that's God moving, you do want to share it. I mean, and that's the gospel. That's yeah. that, that inspires me to say, Hey, this is what I believe. And this is, you know, yeah, this is why I believe it. Um, because I don't think everybody exactly sees the world that way. If it's something that, something that develops. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that's I think that's right and I, I, I bring all that up because I think a good way to look at Nehemiah at least from a spiritual perspective is to say that this is a man who has experienced God has deep passion in his heart for uh, Jerusalem but m- mostly for God for the, mm-hmm. the reason why Jerusalem is important because it's the city of God um, and that passion uh, first of all breaks his heart because when he sees Jerusalem the way that it is you know it breaks his heart but then it mm-hmm. also motivates and moves him to to rebuild the city walls 
And I think a lot of us can look out into the world that we live in and be heartbroken by the mm-hmm. state of the condition, you know, the condition that we're in, as Nehemiah said, um, and and didn't want to do something, right? Want to to grab a, a, a shovel or grab a, a bucket, grab something, and, and start trying to rebuild, uh, or or build maybe for the first time a space that that recognizes the presence of God, uh, that recognizes where God is, and you know, we can start with the church and say, well, where where about the church? Do we see the wall broken down? Where in the church do we see a spot that needs that needs mending? You know, spiritually speaking, obviously, there's a you know, where where do we look and and what is it that God has laid on our heart to do to to be a part of that? When I go the literal direction and point to like working with Appalachian Service Project mm-hmm. or doing yeah. the early response team, where that's good. Yeah, you know, you you see the world is broken, you see people in need, and you feel in your heart god yeah. needs me to help take care of those people right. like that that's a thing you know for for me i feel like you know i'm young i'm fit enough i need to get out there and help chainsaw trees and tote yeah. stuff off people's you know I, and i haven't done it that many times but i've got to do it a few times and that's a, a particularly a place where i feel called yeah. when i see something you know that's not from seeing god that's from seeing <laughs> you know the world broken right but i, th- I think that the reason why the world <laughs> broken bothers you is because of, of God's presence in the, in the moments that yeah. you've experienced God. That's where true empathy comes from. I think uh, is from a recognition that we're all created in the image of God. Um, I think Kate has a, my wife, Kate, um, for some reason, she's always had this, uh, this desire to participate in stuff with uh, like, feeding kids okay um so like uh her brother's church and kennesaw umc both do this um backpack blessings i think is what they call it Mm. where they make lunches for kids to take home who are likely not going to have food at home when they get home so they're eating at school but then there's right nothing at home so um that's just a place where she's felt like that's wrong and i want to do something about that yeah that's cool Um, and that's a place where she's gotten involved that's really cool I mean, you asked the question, but where do you see it? How how are you called to action by by God? He calls me on the phone. Okay. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> no, I see. Um, do you screen that call? Yeah, yeah, of course. He leaves a voicemail. I'll call him back later. In two years. <laughs> Your voicemail box is full. Right. <laughs> um, That's good. No, I think uh, I my you know my my focus i think is mostly on the church itself so and this is probably a a place where i I need to grow no doubt Uh, i need to expand my my site but i i see in the church you know places where um you know where there's a lack of just knowledge about about god there's a lack of knowledge about scripture but just there, there's and there's misknowledge. There's like misknowledge. There's mistruth. There is uh, misinformation. Misinformation. Yes. Oh right. no! Right. Anything but misinformation. It's true. Yeah. And I, and and what's important about that is it, it affects the way that people You've live their been lives. Called to be a fact checker. No. Yeah. Well, kind of. And as, in a sense, that's kind of true. Although I wouldn't call it fact. Uh, but so, so that that's my Truth passion. Checker. My passion. Yeah. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. I like that. I we need to write that down. It. Let's do something with that later. Okay. <laughs> 
Um, but no, my passion for what I do, uh, my service at the church is, 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 is motivated by that is by, you know, motivated by a lack of, of genuine knowledge and authenticity when it comes to, to God and scripture. Um, that, that's the place where I'm, I'm jumped on the wall, I guess you could say, and trying to do rebuilding. But I mean, I, the same way as you were talking, Nick, about, uh, the ASP trip that we took and then, um, going down and doing the ERT stuff, um, that one time, like that, those are places where I also feel like that's a, a physical need, an actual, you know, physical mm-hmm. need that's in the world that, that also, you know, that's what, why, you know, signed up to do this Habitat for Humanity thing and all this stuff. So there's actual rebuilding that needs to be done. I'm also intrigued by Nehemiah's ability to inspire the people to go along with his plan. What do you mean by that? Well, okay, so he rounded up some folks also in um, Babylon to come back with him. Yeah. But he arrives at an occupied, at a, at a city that people are living in. Right. Or living near and around. And yep. there's, you know, there have been waves of um, exiles returning before him. Sure. But most of the, I think most of the people living there are people who got left behind before. Okay. So they, cause they all kind of so took over. Even worse. Yeah. Right. Right. And you're going to show up and say, I know <laughs> I y'all have been here for a while, but I got a plan and yeah. it's a good one. Yeah. And you just need to do what I tell you. Why did, why did the people not start rebuilding before he even got them? I mean, this has been 130 years. Why are they still in this condition? What causes the people to just give up? Apathy. It's just apathy. I mean, they have no motivation to kind of preserve their own dignity or like try to live in a place that's, you know, not just ruins. Well, it was burned. My, yeah. my great grandfather, it was burned down. And then, yeah, but, his father has been burned down and I'm just not moving that. It's that's just it's, how it is. It's burnt down. Yeah. But I mean, part, I mean, part of the reason is that everybody who knew the importance of the city was exiled out. So we talk about the stories that Nehemiah told. I wonder if there was anybody left to tell stories in Jerusalem itself, right? Because they didn't have that ability. Those people weren't readers and they weren't storytellers. I don't know. I don't know if that's true. I have no idea what the historical relevance of that is. But But how could you let the city stay in? Yeah, how do you stay in a situation like that? I mean, I know that you were talking about people who were holding them down, right? Like uh, the people who were kind of running the area and didn't want the people of Jerusalem to have dignity, didn't want them to be empowered. So maybe through political scheming and through just just oppression, maybe they've been... Because that's what Nehemiah had to fight against to get it done. Maybe, yeah. I mean, everybody on the walls working, you know mortar in one hand and sword in the other right right so so maybe that before nehemiah shows up there's just nobody there to fight that broken fight system. that fight. The broken system so then i then i want to jump here then because I, I, I said all that to set this up <laughs> i have a question i want to know and i don't know if this will go make it on the podcast or not but i'm interested in knowing uh whether or not nehemiah then can be used as a metaphor for uh maybe the church's call to go in and fix like broken neighborhoods neighborhoods that have been impoverished and hmm. where people have no dignity or where we, we fear, you know, there's the lack of dignity, but there's also people and political forces that are trying to oppress and stop that rebuilding from happening because you don't want those people to be empowered or you have dignity. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious as to whether or not there's a parallel there. I don't know about neighborhoods, but definitely in, in some of our structures and like healthcare, you know, um, or, you know, access to 
to healthcare. No, I like it. I love it. I think that's exactly what I was going for. So you got healthcare and education, these systems that are broken, right? That have been burned to the ground for some people, uh, that, that aren't fully accessible right. by all people, right? And yet there's a lot, it seems as though there are forces at work. I won't say people, but I'll say forces at work that want to keep it that way, right? Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's really hard when you have people, I, I feel for the for the people that are in, you know, bureaucracies and then have to make a decision every day on whether or not they're actually going to like yeah, be a decent human today, <laughs> <laughs> you know? Because you're making a choice about people's lives. Yeah, yeah. And those aren't easy choices. No. It's not as clear-cut as do I save someone or do I not save someone. There's always feels as though, because we live in this kind of world of scarcity where it feels like if you if you give to one person, you have to take away from another, right? Mm-hmm. Zero sum kind of thing. And uh, that's not the way the church works, and it's not the way the kingdom of God works, but it is the way the world works, and that's a pattern that we are very good at, even in, within our churches, of doing. When you think of going into a neighborhood and rebuilding it, or a neighborhood where the people have lost hope or there is apathy mm-hmm. um, or the system just feels too broken to repair, um, one of the things that happens is gentrification yeah and there is always a debate as that process takes place about you know how are you enabling people who have been in that neighborhood to stay in that neighborhood um versus you know the solution to the neighborhood is actually you you're forcing everyone who has lived there historically out right um because they can no longer afford to be in the neighborhood um and so what role can the church play in missions as we are looking for places to be active and try to network with a community and be involved in improving a neighborhood without gentrifying it yeah. in the traditional sense. Um, but that gentrification process is very profitable. It is. Yeah. And there are certainly forces that work together to take advantage of a neighborhood mm-hmm. um, and turn it over without due consideration for the people who are already living there. So to answer that question, though, let's, let's go back to Nehemiah for a second. Like, uh, he's coming in and, and improving Jerusalem, right? Yeah. Land values are going up. Things are getting more expensive. Now, he, did, he lives yeah. in a completely different system than we live in now. Uh, <laughs> but one of the things, you know, uh, one of the things I think that that makes Nehemiah so successful or effective, I should say, at, at doing this, and and one of the reasons why he gets the people involved, like you were talking about, you were curious as to how he gets this message across, is that he has he has he has given everyone value and role and purpose in in that in that in that construction, mm-hmm. right? He's not he's not just building something and then giving it to somebody. He's he's everyone's participating in that rebuilding. Um, Somehow he got some kind of consensus yeah, or some kind of like, it seems like everyone was on board yeah. because he, he even is able to move all the people who were living outside the city into the city for their own safety Mm -hmm. where it felt like we're all in this together rather than right. We're doing this plan and y'all aren't involved in it. And that's, that's the thing that I would say for a church like Northside, if, if we were ever going to go into a community and really invest in, in trying to make a community better, <clears throat> I think one of the things that we'd have to do in order to make that, uh, 
to make that faithful as well as effective is is to become part of that community ourselves, right? It wouldn't be like yeah. a fly in and do this and then fly out kind of thing. Right. That's one of the reasons why it's so important to do missions within our own neighborhoods and stuff because we need to have a presence and we need to be part of the community itself. When they rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, how much wall are we talking about? <laughs> well, it tells you in the story, doesn't it? It describes the track of the wall, but I don't remember it like... It's not a lot. It's not like a huge I mean, like, are we area. talking... I thought you drew a map, didn't you? There was a map, but the map didn't have a scale on it. The map yeah. in my study Bible didn't have a scale on it, and it just made me really curious. Like, are we talking about 10 miles worth of wall or half a mile worth of wall? Like... All right, so how much wall to go around? This is a map of the city here. And we got a scale up here of a thousand feet. So just eyeballing it. You're looking at like uh, maybe 10,000 square feet. Or not square feet, 10,000 feet around. around. So almost two miles. Is Is that two miles? Yeah. So there there you go. About about two miles of wall. That helps me conceptualize. So now I want to um, get a map out. And do a two-mile wall around Northside Church <laughs> and figure out what we're going to rebuild. <laughs> okay. Hey, that's not bad. That's not a bad idea. This is, you know, the literalist in me. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> You've got these high conceptual <laughs> thoughts, and I'm like, all right, this is the wall we're going to rebuild. <laughs> that would be great, actually. I bet you could find a lot to do within two miles of the church. Oh, yeah. That's a fantastic... Uh, we're I'm developing the Nehemiah missions approach. All right. All right, guys. Well, thank you for joining us for this uh, conversation on Ezra Nehemiah and a couple of other different things. Sarah, thank you for being with us here today. Thank you for having me. Nick, as always, thank you for joining us. You got any final words for the people of Northside Church? You're welcome. Now, if you're around and you don't already have a Sunday school class, WWJD meets at 1010 in room 300, mostly... 30s with some 20s there you go okay some people have kids some people don't and if you need some other sunday school options we've got them on the website <laughs> or you can come join me in the chapel uh, at 10 10 we're doing uh lies my preacher told me so we always welcome there guys thank you so much for being here and uh have a great week peace <laughs>